Hey everybody, this is Manny Faces, producer and host of Newsbeat, back with you again for another episode of Backbeat, our behind-the-scenes look at our full episodes. We do the Backbeats to make sure that we give a little bit of additional insight uh, into the making of the information that prompted the creation of our full episodes. Uh, If you haven't uh, already checked our latest episode, it is titled MS-13, Made in the USA. That's what we're here to discuss. Uh, We certainly want you to listen to the full episode before you listen to us here. So go back and do that if you haven't already. We'll wait. All right, great. Also of note, you can uh, visit our website for all of our past episodes and backbeats and full stories that accompany each episode. I think that's something that people are impressed with. Uh, they tell us they love the full stories. That If we give a, a full episode about a topic that, that they'd like to know more about, they can go to the website, usnewsbeat.com, and read an entire Uh, what we call cover story that goes with each episode. So it's great to get everything packed into these 20-minute episodes. They're great for the commute. And, of course, you could subscribe to the the podcast wherever you find podcasts, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher. We're everywhere. Uh, So you could do that as well. But if you want a little bit more insight, uh, that's a great place to go. There you can also contact us if you have any questions or have any show topic ideas. We're actually always on the lookout for uh, interesting ways to Uh, Look at topics uh, of social justice, civil liberties, and all the kind of good stuff that we cover on Newsbeat. And uh, last but not least, if you do feel so inclined and you like our work, you can swing over to our support page. It's usnewsbeat.com slash support. We make sure that these donations go toward the fund that pays our artists. You know that we bring in independent artists to create original lyrical content that matches and amplifies the topics covered in each episode it's a monumental task we have the best mcs we have the best artists believe me they're the best trust me everyone says it and we bring them in we pay them we compensate them for their artistic work it is very high quality it adds great commentary and makes these episodes ever so compelling we'd like to continue to do that we want to make sure that they get compensated your help can help us Help them. So please, usnewsbeat.com slash support and uh, give you more insight about where that money goes and our artist in residence program is all there. So without further ado, I'm joined as I always am by uh, my fearless colleagues uh, at Newsbeat, the editor-in-chief, Chris Tawarski. What's up, Manny? And the managing editor, Rashed Mian. Yo. Hovering over us in spirit form is our executive producer, Jed Mori. Here we are discussing the latest episode, MS-13, Made in the USA, uh, a truly important and timely and uh, extremely interesting, I thought, uh, did I say informative? Kick-ass? Pretty kick-ass episode. We talked about the idea of MS-13, the uh, ruthless gang that has taken over uh, certain neighborhoods uh, around the country, definitely do some bad things, and and, and, and we get into sort of their tactics a little bit but the angle we took with this episode is sort of the historical background uh we hear a lot about this we hear a lot about it from our political figures especially president trump uh, who delivers uh, very fearful messages about ms-13's influence on their neighborhoods and society at large Uh, some of it is a little bit hyperbolic some of it is worthy of discussion for sure but what isn't told is the fact that ms-13 isn't what many people think of in that the United States actually helped create this gang, create the problem that they now sort of rail against and propose solutions for that, if you look back historically, are kind of the reasons why they're here in the first place. So it's interesting episode. You're joining us now. You've heard it. You're like, wow, this is amazing. Our amazing musical guests on this, Rebel Diaz and uh, and Cruise Control from Reyes del Bajo Mundo, uh, El Salvadoran group, uh, added their unique perspectives to this. It was a powerful episode. We're here to kick it and talk about it a little bit more. Chris, uh, please, aside from the musical guests, as you do always, introduce the voices that we had, and let's get into it. Right. So we, we spoke with uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative journalist and author, Raymond Bonner, who was one of two uh, journalists who went to the site of a village in El Salvador a month after what has been dubbed the worst massacre possibly in Latin American history, known as the El Mazote Massacre, where up to a thousand 
civilians, villagers were slaughtered, many of them women and children. And he exposed that uh, for the New York Times in January 1982. We spoke with Jose Miguel Cruz, the current director of research at Florida International University's Kimberly Green Latin American and Caribbean Center. And we also spoke with Patrick Young, an immigration attorney, uh, immigration rights advocate, the program director at CARISIN, which stands for the Central American Refugee Center. And he's also the co-founder of the Long Island Civic Engagement Table. And um, I, think, I think to kick this, this backbeat off, I think it's important just uh, for listeners to get a little bit of context. That being that, Manny, as you, as you just said, um, you know, I think that the, uh, the perception out there, and especially off of the president's rhetoric, is that MS-13 is an import to the United States, when in fact, it is an export. It was created here right. uh, on American soil in the midst of the El Salvadoran Civil War. And just a little bit on that, I mean, that, that raged from 1979 through 1992 and claimed more than 75,000 lives, displaced up to a million or more people. And, you know, the, the word brutal, I mean, doesn't even come close to the atrocities uh, that were committed during this conflict. We're talking death squads. Right. We're talking mass executions. We're talking mutilations. We're talking uh, mass rapes primarily by a regime that was supported financially by the United States, by the administrations of President Carter and President Reagan. You know, so when you hear these things on the news and you hear the president yelling and screaming about MS-13 and we need, we need the Southern Wall, you know, to stop, you know, the, these bad hombres from, from, from coming in and, and, you know, murdering and raping, you need to understand that it was the United States, unfortunately, that part and parcel gave birth to MS-13. For listeners who may not know, we're speaking to you from Long Island, which is uh, has one of the largest concentrations of MS-13 in the United States, I think um, second only to Los Angeles area. Mm-hmm. Long Island has sort of become the poster child of uh, this fight against MS-13, legitimately due to the amount of slayings uh, committed by the gang here. In an 18-month period, 17 people, mostly teenagers, were killed primarily in extremely gruesome, you know, means uh, by machete, uh, mutilations, tortured, you know, beforehand. And this prompted President Trump to, number one, come here uh, last July and hold a uh, very publicized press conference where he called some of the suburban neighborhoods here, quote, killing fields before he repitched, you know, his proposal for for the Southern Wall tens of thousands more immigration agents to be hired. Right. And he had as his guests of honor at his first State of the Union this past January, the parents of two teenage girls, Kayla Cuevas and Nisa Mickens, who were slain by MS-13 out here on Long Island. And again, uh, that was the preface into his reiteration uh, and call for the southern border wall and, you know, stricter immigration policies. And I just want to quote him from that night. Uh, This is the President Trump quote tonight. I am calling on the Congress to finally close the deadly loopholes that have allowed MS-13 and other criminals to break into our country. Hmm. Rashad, maybe you could shed a little bit of light on some of the problems with that with that statement. Well, I guess, uh, firstly, that uh, what if you're hearing it out on the call, you're like, okay, we want to stop people from coming here and killing everybody. But what he's doing is that the rhetoric actually over-exaggerates the, the threat that experts say MS-13 actually poses. The slayings obviously are horrific, especially when they're young people living in our communities. But, uh, you know, the appeal a lot of times by politicians that it happened in the last election in November um, is to send around, you know, leaflets and, and flyers showing tattooed up uh, Spanish people claiming that they're going to come here, you know, <laughs> and murder your children. Um, but that typically doesn't happen. It's important to understand the context. A lot of people fled El Salvador because of the brutal, oppressive regime there, a regime that went that uh, had the goal to actually kill the Archbishop Oscar Romero right. at the pew 
one day after he was sort of speaking to the soldiers of that regime saying stop the repression and then he was slaughtered the next day and right. he actually wrote to president carter asking to suspend aid to right yeah that and, regime. and that was march 24th 1980 so we're 38 year anniversary of his death um the other sad thing that doesn't get mentioned a lot about the Oscar Romero situation is that again, when people, thousands gathered for his funeral in El Salvador, it was actually bombed. So there was up to three dozen people who were actually killed at his funeral. Oh, wow. Um, people who were trying to, mostly peasants who were trying to flee El Salvador uh, for neighboring Honduras were gunned down by air. These are innocent people literally just trying to run for their lives. Uh, and they were gunned down. So that's why I'm bringing this up. And that's why I think it's important what Chris said about just the, the, the tragedies that unfolded uh, over that about decade or 12 years of this war. Right. Um, mothers wa- said they sent their sons here to America because they didn't want them to either join the leftist guerrillas or to have to join the military. Mm. So they said, you know, we're going to send you to America. And within, I think, three years, 500,000 refugees ended up in the United States. Right. And then they gathered <clears throat> in Los Angeles. And, you know, they wanted to find camaraderie and they're living in the streets basically because they're penniless. Um, so that's why it's important to, you know, yeah. to think about this in that context because, as Chris mentioned, these this is an export that uh, <laughs> we created. We sent, we deported a lot of these people back to El Salvador, which was already a failing state at that point, into prisons where they were with other violent people. And that's sort of where the nucleus of the gang Originated. Right. It seems almost like it's it, then it becomes a cycle. They it's like a self fulfilling prophecy. Or right. Something. Right. They they come here with nothing because of what we we our practices tore their country up and drove yeah. them out. They came here, land of opportunity. It's America. And if they came illegally or not, it's very often people who escape these kind of situations do migrate illegally, so to speak. Some of them eventually become naturalized or citizens, but uh, in many cases, again, coming here with nothing, not having the support structure, uh, they get rounded up, sent back. As Bonner, uh, you know, explained, they go back with no skills. All they know is this kind of violence that's going on. There's violence down there. They're thrown in jail down there. They're, you know, and so they they sort of strategize and come together as a gang for, you know, self-protection. And, uh, you know, I thought it was interesting. I think it was uh, Cruz who said in the in the episode that they don't, it's not a money-making gang. It's not no. like, you know, the, some of these criminal enterprises. This is sort of a, a sad tale of survival yeah. in horrible conditions. Now, I, the disclaimer I need to make, of course, is that we're not defending MS-13. Right. We're, we're not defending members of this gang. We're not defending people who carry out these brutal, you know, slayings and terrorized neighborhoods. That absolutely happens and we need to do whatever we can do and we encourage law enforcement to do protect the citizens. It was mentioned in the episode that a lot of times the idea is thrown out there that we're all at risk. We're all, you know, this is this is going to they're going to get us. They're going to yeah. get us all. They're going to get the your... majority of Americans probably never even came upon somebody who No, they they was in they kill group. and they terrorize sort of their own little enclaves in their own little neighborhoods and instead of trying to protect the citizens of those enclaves and really try to solve the problem, I think is what the what it is here is we mass deport, grab up everybody we can, throw them back, cycle continues. Yeah. And then we use that as fear-mongering tactics to, again, as Chris said, su- uh, drum up support for these very harsh immigration policies that wouldn't then right. end the problem. Or building a wall. That's what, yeah, that's what you're saying. The, right. It's important to have the discussion sure. uh, with your disclaimer uh, because just building a wall is not going to stop the problem. Jailing uh, uh, drug dealers is not going to stop the problem. People have an addiction problem. Sure. So when you're talking about uh, MS-13, is what uh, Raymond Bonner actually brought up, I think, toward the end of the episode, where he said we should start pouring money into the country right. uh, you- to actually help them. Because at the height of the Civil War, El Salvador, the repressive regime was getting uh, financial aid and military aid from the U.S. government. And it was the third most foreign aid that we were giving to any other government behind Israel and Egypt. Right. So just to have an understanding of just how much, especially the Reagan administration, thought it was important to step into this war because they had this fear of communism Communism, during the the Cold War. Right, right. Right. So, but we didn't do anything to actually improve the situation that we helped create. Wait a minute. Wait That's, a minute. Are you saying that the United States goes into other countries of the world to further Iraq, their own Afghanistan, you know, right? Their Syria, own, yeah, like the, those kind of places. Libya, and then Yemen. doesn't help pick up the pieces afterwards. Doesn't financially build it back up. It is one of those mind-boggling things, and I wish you know we had like a politician on here that we could talk to and say, "Look, so you're you're fine with spending billions that would help go toward 
you know, killing right. basically people. Um, but why isn't there a proportionate amount of money being spent to actually raise up people's lives? So then there's no reason for them to flee their country. I think right. when you when you listen to these people during interviews, a lot of people don't want to flee their country. Right. They're doing it because they basically have to do it for survival. So, And I think that's why this, this, this episode is important. If you don't recognize your history, you're doomed to repeat it, right? So if we know that this is where these gangs have come from, expertly uh, laid out in the episode by, you know, our very informative guest voices, then we'll possibly make the same mistakes going forward when dealing with other countries and how we engage but it in seems like we're affairs. still we're still doing that I and mean, you know we right we right. Right. that's important have that, a long history of intervention in latin america and now we're doing the same thing in the middle east right chris right right, right. and then right. what happens is now we have this problem throwing these kind of blanket solutions and fear-mongering tactics does not solve the problem at the same time right and and to even begin to understand or discuss some of these topics the border wall more immigration you know, agents, you need to be informed with the entire picture, you know, and that's what we're doing here. The majority of, of the public, I would assume, have no idea. For example, the El Mazote massacre was carried out at the hands of a battalion known as the Atla Cattle Battalion. They were trained by the United States. Just as a simple taxpayer, wouldn't you want to know that your hard-earned money went to killing women and children in another country. I think you have a right to know that. You know, and that's not something that you're going to hear on TV that says something you're even going to read in history books. Right. Just to, to a little background, too, on, on Oscar Romero. It's hard, I think, to, to fully understand just how big a deal that was. That wasn't just... Oscar Romero was the most revered religious figure in the entire country. Maybe the figure Maybe. in general, right? Yep. You know, and he was gunned down while giving mass. Mm. And speaking to his importance, uh, Pope Francis has declared that he's going to be, that uh, Romero will be canonized, which I think is going to happen this year or early next year too. Wow. So. Well, so, I think this speaks to all of, like, the greater picture here, when you look at the gang problem in America, whether it be MS-13 or Bloods and Crips or, or, or Latin Kings or, you know, all the other, you know, on the, the 18th Street, which is the other uh, El Salvadorian guy. When you look at the, how the gang problem has emerged and, and been part of the kind of culture of America, these things have beginnings. Mm -hmm. They have origins. They have a genesis. Right. They don't just and come out of nowhere. They don't just come out of nowhere. These aren't just people being bad for the sake of it. These aren't, you know what I mean? Like there's there's reasons why all of these things happen. And what it does is it's it should help you just kind of open up your mind and, and perspective a little bit to understand why communities have devolved in this manner, why crime is rampant, why gangs are, are there. It largely has to do with survival under conditions that are put in place by systems out of your control. And when you grow up as a kid in the 80s in, in El Salvador, this is what you're faced with because of external federal policies carried out by the world's greatest superpower. Right. And when you look at uh, African-American communities in America, the oppression, you know, the oppressive regimes that we've covered and why we riot and, and on other episodes that we've covered, you start to realize that it's the same Superpower. It's the same, just done domestically. We do the same things. We make moves that are oppressive, and then the people who are left to suffer under those policies need to find a way to survive. And sometimes that works out in criminalistic ways. So, again, if you're going to just kind of... It's a great quote. Who said it? Mark Fallon in our, uh, in our Guantanamo Bay episode says, you know, you don't fight fire with fire. That's the work of an arsonist. Right. You fight fire by depriving it of oxygen, which means you really go after the source of the problem. So at what point is this country going to start realizing right. that by our actions, we're the source of these problems? Well, we have, a, we have, a, we have a hard time reconciling with well, you know what we've done in the past. Sure, and that's, but we can't keep making these mistakes. This is the lesson to be learned in MS-13. If, if, if you want to look at MS-13 and how it's terrorizing neighborhoods within this country, first of all, protect the citizens of those neighborhoods that are citizens <laughs> and uh, children that are, so maybe their parents were illegal, but they're citizens. These are United States children that are being terrorized. So protect them. Go after the right. source. But if the source of that problem is lack of economic development in their home country, lack of, of foreign policy that looks after other countries in the world instead of just trying to rip them of their resources, take over their regimes, and 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 be the kind of colonizing force that the United States has been all these years. That's the source of the problem. Right. And 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 Patrick Young talks about 
the idea of the some of the people, some of the young kids that are fleeing Central America now, either Honduras or El Salvador, these are unaccompanied minors who are fleeing because they want to get away from forced gang recruitment. Right. A lot of these people are forced into the gangs, especially when they're living in these small villages or, or in rural areas. They come here trying to get safety. And now because of this heightened immigration awareness um, and what uh, – the Trump administration is trying to do where they're deporting people in mass, as we just saw uh, earlier this week in Tennessee, where they grabbed 97 people at a meatpacking plant, brought them to detention centers or to, to offices to find out if they should be deported. Um, but it's just it's all part of the policy. Right. right? And there was a recent uh, study that just came out um, that I hope everybody reads. It was a, a joint effort by The New York Times and The Marshall Project, oh, which is, is a nonprofit. Yeah. They titled it The Myth of the Criminal Immigrant. And they looked into this study, which was conducted by four major universities in the United States, and it says uh, a large majority of the areas have many more immigrants today, the, the areas that they, they studied, including cities, than they did in 1980, and fewer violent crimes. So the, the study also went on to look at 136 metro areas in the United States, and almost 70% of those studied, the immigrant population increased from 80 to 2016, while crime either stayed stable or actually decreased. Wow. So this is just all part of the rhetoric that the right. immigrants are coming in here and they're causing high levels of crime right. when the, the studies actually are disputing that. that that's a great point um, and a great segue into this quote that I wanted to read from Patrick Young in the episode um, that speaks to when you don't tell the full story and you don't have that context, how the hell are you ever actually going to solve the problem? You're not because you're misidentifying. Right, right. And his quote was, this is being depicted as a war against MS-13, but the people who are mostly being targeted are the victims of MS-13. And I think that's something that a lot of the Americans don't understand. MS-13 attacks almost exclusively people who are within the Latino community or children of Latino immigrants. And we're not seeing the Trump administration reached out to the victims. It's as though you had a war on domestic violence that went primarily after the women who are suffering beatings. Yep. Right. And, and if you time. deport some of these unaccompanied minors who fled forced recruitment, you know, what, what Young told us, they're either being the gangs or it's a death sentence. You know, right. you, you fled us. You left. Oh, that's true. Yeah. And this is what's going to happen. You, yeah. We're going to well, get Well, because they want to make a point, obviously, to right. other people that don't are leave. in those communities. Well, I think that's profound. I think that statement says it all. If you And what you just say, Chris, really says it all. You know, if you don't know the whole story, how can we get comprehensive immigration reform past partisan politics or whatever the case would be if, if, if we're if these things are not being if part of the things, equation yeah, yeah and if they're not a critical part knowledge, of the equation right of course so we did our part we do what we can over here at Newsbeat to try to you know add to the equation in a positive manner right. but it's knowing the context knowing the big picture not lashing out with you know emotional or fear politicized. based politicized right. there's so many ways to handle this problem that don't involve any of that right and, and we and we didn't even mention that the people who are being arrested and detained by law enforcement accused of being MS13 for simply writing the calling code for El Salvador in their notebook or having a Salvadoran flag uh, and we know this because the ACLU and other organizations have fought some of these uh these arrests right and these kids have been you know let go because there's just not evidence to show that these, some of these people are MS-13 right. members. It's just part of this, this heightened fear-mongering that's going on right. that you know law enforcement is actually using to arrest some people who, who may not have any association with any of these violent gangs. Wait a minute. You mean to tell Here me- Here we go again. That law enforcement agencies would actually arrest people without- Little evidence? Yeah, with little evidence to support the fact that they were doing something illegal. That sounds crazy. Yeah. I-, I Sense the sarcasm. Oh, maybe. I think it's coming through everywhere in this uh, <laughs> this episode, this podcast. I think uh, the, all the listeners can hear it. But yeah, no, it's look, it's a problem, and um, hopefully we can get through uh, our partisan bickering in this country and uh, look back to history, analyze it, and use history as a tool uh, to solve some of the problems that we have in this country right now. Yeah, well, I, I think we definitely do need to talk a little bit um, about our musical guests. Well, we do. And I want to do something um, a little bit different this time around. Are you kicking us off the mics? We have done enough talking about a subject that we learned about, that we are passionate about, and that we brought to life in a Newsbeat episode. But I do want to give one shout out, though, before we go. Hannah Dreyer, reporter for ProPublica. Phenomenal piece. 
Shout out to her and also ProPublica, obviously. Mm. What was the um, name of the piece? It's called A Betrayal. Yes, definitely um, read that. It's a, it's a horrific, it's, sad tragedy. It has all the makings of a, of a I mean, Shakespearean the, play. And, the, and her lead, you know, I don't want to spoil the whole thing. Let's just say that the lead will also, you know, shed a light on the pressure that uh, young immigrants are challenged with, are faced with mm. to join or to commit heinous acts on behalf of on behalf of yeah. of a gang. Yeah, you know? we'll link to that. It's called "The Betrayal." Is the name of the article. It's a ProPublica piece. It's published by ProPublica and New York Magazine. So I think you guys should pick it up in the if it's in your newsstand. Right, the latest New York Magazine. All right. Well, we we listen. That's that's how we do here at Newsbeat. We show love to other journalists. It'd be nice. Show us some love if some of the journalists would show us some love. Uh, We're newsbeat, available for interviews. Newsbeat at morycreative.com. You can email us uh, because we want to help amplify. We want people to help amplify us just like we help amplify Miss Dreyer. Uh, that being said, the people who do help amplify our message with incredible talent, skill, and uh, uh, and real real passion uh, are incredible. Our artists. Once again, usnewsbeat.com slash support if you like the musical aspect of what we do, the lyrical aspect of what we do. I know you do. That's why you're listening to us here. And this time around, because of the special guest artist. Now, as the musical director, as the producer, and as the artist liaison, these these are my people where I, I've worked with in the, in the hip hop community for many many years, and so I reach out to folks that I know are talented, again impassioned about some of the subjects we talk about, and nobody really fit this episode better uh, in my mind than the duo uh, Rebel Diaz. Uh, this is a revolutionary hip hop group, uh, and revolutionary is not thrown out there lightly. This is something that, and it's not self proclaimed. Uh, these are a couple of really talented artists that use music with a message to fight back against oppression, fight back against immigrant uh, discrimination. Uh, these are advocates for these issues that not only uh, create music, but are out there advancing the cause of millions of people who are treated unfairly uh, by government or by, uh, you know, by media, by all, all kinds of forces. So, I ran into Rebel Diaz many, many years ago in the streets of New York, up in the Bronx, the BX. Shouts to the RDAC family, the Rebel Diaz Arts Collective. These guys were not only making music, but they had opened up a, a space in New York City for young people to come and uh, learn about uh, civic engagement, to learn about making music, to sort of provide a, an artistic space, an expressive space, where, uh, where young people in the Bronx come uh, and discuss these issues, perform about these issues, uh, and came together. The Rebel Diaz Arts Collective was shut down at some point uh, in the city from a physical space, but its uh, its spirit lives on uh, in the uh, in the work that Rebel Diaz continues to do, traversing the country, traversing the world, really speaking at panels and discussions and conferences and performing. I saw them perform in 2017 at South by Southwest uh, for a uh, sort of a political and social justice themed showcase. They're out there doing work. I know that they're going to be at. Lehigh University uh, very shortly for a as part of a, a social justice storytelling conference event. So these guys are out there doing the work. I reached out to them for the possibility of contributing to this episode. They were all about it. And as you could tell by their contributions, they are truly all about this work and truly all about these messages. They recruited on our behalf, Mr. Cruz Control uh, from Reyes del Bajo Mundo, which is a very, uh, very well-known, very legendary El Salvadoran hip-hop group, perfect for the episode, perfect because he has insight from living, from from being in El Salvador, coming here to this country, knowing people, having family members, knowing this story. This was the no-brainer to bring these gentlemen on board for this episode. So I want to take a quick, I want to take a little bit of time to have a quick chat with these artists. That'd be phenomenal. All yeah. right, let's do it. I'm let's down. talk Let's talk to Rebel Diaz and kick it a little bit about the work that they do musically and also as advocates and activists. Yo, Peace, this is Rod Stars, and I'm one half of Rebel Diaz. Peace, peace, one love. This is G1, other half of Rebel Diaz. <laughs> All, right. All right, guys, we appreciate you doing this. So now we're coming off this really sick episode where we sort of talked about MS-13 and the origins and... Uh, U.S. intervention in El Salvador. Maybe, Rod, I'll start with you. Sort of you guys, So obviously we talked about intervention in one uh, Latin American country. Now, you guys are children of political refugees from Chile who fled another U.S.-supported regime, one that had violently overthrown the democratically elected Allende government. So can you talk a little bit about how that reality 
has shaped you as people and artists? Absolutely. That's, it's been, it's defined our lives. You know what I'm saying? We're the children of exiled revolutionaries from Chile who were, you know, were down with Allende, who were down with the ideas of, of socialism and, and of, of revolutions all over Latin America. It was a historic moment, you know what I'm saying? In which you had the Cuban revolution and you had movements, you know, all over. But what was unique about Chile is a unique situation in, in that they had, you know, a socialist government democratically elected into government. You know what I'm saying? That was the first thing that happened. It wasn't necessarily through an armed revolution. The people voted. People chose socialism. They chose Salvador Allende and the popular unity. And because that new government uh, affected U.S. corporations and because that new government, you know, wasn't about capitalism, which is what the U.S. is about, the U.S. being the bully and the, you know, watchdog over the world that they are, went in and there was a CIA-funded and supported military dictatorship. And so that that defines our, our, you know, my parents were young college students at that time. My dad was, uh, you know, uh, disappeared for two years and incarcerated for four as a political prisoner, tortured by U.S. Uh, School of the America-trained military in Chile. And um, I was born uh, years later, obviously, as, as a result of my father being blessed and, and, and having survived those concentration camps. Um, so I'm, I'm born in England. You know what I'm saying? I got a British passport to this day. So to me, it defines my life. Like, I'm, I was born in exile. And then we end up, ironically, we end up in Chicago. And I grew up in Chicago. And, and you know, my whole life I was, you know what I'm saying, explaining to people how I was born in England and why I had this British passport. Um, and ironically, we ended up in Chicago, which is the city where the University of Chicago economist Milton Friedman. Now, Milton Friedman was the brainchild of the U.S. military dictatorship in Chile because it wasn't just that simple as them like going in and because they wasn't down with socialism, they went in with a plan. And that plan was to make Chile a neoliberal experiment. They were literally testing out new forms of capitalism because, you know, capitalism was failing. And so Chile became literally a guinea pig for a U.S. economic experiment, you know, at, at, at the price. The price was paid by the Chilean people in which Thousands were tortured, murdered, disappeared. You know, to this day, we still hear stories of people having their body, you know, hundreds of bodies being thrown in the ocean. Um, they're still finding graves to this day of all the people that were murdered. So, absolutely, the fact that we, uh, those are our roots. You know, saying we're the, we're the offspring of of the people that Pinochet didn't kill. We keep those ideas uh, alive, and that's why we look at at the world with an internationalist perspective. Our parents were members of the revolutionary leftist movement, the MIR, one of the most respected revolutionary organizations in Latin America. And so the, those are the roots of Rebel Diaz. And, and G, what about you? How has that history, what your parents went through, these constant interventions by the United States and Latin America and around the world, how does that inform what you're doing? Man, for, for me, I think, uh, you know, it's very similar, obviously, to, to my brother Rod's uh, perspective on it. I'm, I'm five years younger, um, so I'm, I'm the only one in my family that was born here in the belly of the beast, you know what I'm saying, in the United States and uh, in Chicago. And like Rod said, I think, you know, growing up in Chicago, we were amongst the children of, of refugees from Chile, but we were also amongst uh, the children uh, of refugees from El Salvador, from Guatemala, from Argentina, Uruguay. So we really, you know, grow up. It's like the, the, that experience of growing amongst a population that were people that were displaced from their countries because of war, uh, because of war being waged by the United States military and CIA and, and the foreign policy establishment in the U.S. That directly created the conditions for, for what we grew up in, which was that mix of people. And, you know, you still see that happening. You see, you see it to, to this day. We always talk about in, in, in New York how when we first got to the Bronx, uh, after having grown up in Chicago, there wasn't that many Mexican immigrants. And in Chicago, we got, we got Mexican immigrants that's three, four, five, six generations back. And in New York, it was like a newer immigration pattern for the Mexican immigrants arriving. 
And the reality is that you can't uh, untie that from the effects of NAFTA in 96. So you have NAFTA that goes down, and then you have an influx of new immigrants uh, from Mexico that are particularly from the south of Mexico, from places like Oaxaca, Chiapas, places that were more directly impacted by these trade policies like NAFTA, um, which, you know, before Mexico's biggest export was corn, maiz. Now the biggest export is people, you know what I mean? And so I think growing up, we've been, because of our experiences, having grown up amongst a refugee community, we have that understanding on an international level, not just in particular with our experience in Chile, but on an international level, we have immigrant communities throughout the United States and also in Europe, where we're here as a result, as a direct result of United States foreign policy, as a direct result of U.S. Uh, intervention on behalf of, you know, capitalist interests throughout the global South. And, you know, obviously when it comes to the music and the culture, then we're talking about coming up as a, as, as a, as a music hip hop guy in the, in the 80s and 90s in Chicago, you talk about having influences of music from all across Latin America and the Nueva Cancion movement, which was a folk protest movement that was pan, a pan Latin American protest song movement that, you know, spanned, you know, a couple of decades. Um, and that's, you still find the DNA of that music in our music today. You know what I mean? So in, a, in so many ways on the cultural tip, on the political tip, um, having had that family experience is definitely uh, informs uh, the way that we look at the world today. And Rod, when did you guys first sort of realize that you can sort of use music as a weapon to reach across different races, genders, and inform people about some of the things that uh, you want to discuss in your music, like you do social justice, militarization, capitalism. Um, when did you first realize that you could use music as this tool? You know, it's crazy. I never even really had like a moment because I always knew music. Like I just, the music that I like, like G was saying, the music we grew up with was revolutionary music. And so music was always a part of social struggle to us. It was never something separate. And I feel like, it shouldn't be, you know what I mean? That, that That's a, a failure at times, I think, you know what I'm saying, movements make, is not having music and culture be an integral part of revolutionary movements. You, sometimes they just want to sprinkle it on, on top of the speeches. But I grew up in spaces in which we had peñas, and peñas were like liberated spaces uh, in which there was folk music and there was, uh, music like Inti Limani, which is like more Andean music, or Silvio Rodriguez, Victor Jara, Mercedes Sosa, Pablo Milanes, Daniel Biglietti. I'm naming Nueva Cancion, you know what I'm saying, uh, Violeta Parra, Nueva Cancion, folk singers. You know what I mean? These are the same folks whose lyrics were used by the singers and, uh, you know, folk singers of that era here in the U.S. You know what I mean? So for us, it was never a realization. I do think, though, that in a way, I'll keep it 100, is that I did have a moment when hip-hop, you know what I mean, was more of a moment. Not necessarily music, but when hip-hop, and that was, you know, us hearing groups like Public Enemy, Poor Righteous Teachers, X-Clan, uh, Dead Prez, you know what I'm saying, KRS-One, you know, later on, Nas Common, and artists that were talking about things that we related to having had, you know, been having grown up in a revolutionary environment. Because we grew up around all that. We grew up around the fight against apartheid, you know what I'm saying, in South Africa. I remember being a shorty, a young kid, and hearing about Steve Biko and Mandela. Like, we grew up around that. We grew up around Puerto Rican political prisoner, you know what I'm saying, liberation movements and independence movements in Puerto Rico, you know what I mean? And so for us, you know, music was always a part of it, but hip-hop, I think is when we started hearing the groups. And then even hip-hop as an educational piece, directly like hip-hop being taught and hip-hop being part of political education, I learned that in Chile, you know what I'm saying, as, as a young dude going over there and seeing groups like Hipología who were doing hip-hop workshops. I had never seen a hip-hop workshop before. And so that was eye-opening. So I think that a, a little bit of all of that, you know, hip-hop and music and the Nueva Cancion and then seeing political education in, in, in Chile or seeing hip-hop centers in Germany at a squat in Germany where they had whole buildings taken over and kids, 
was doing, you know, b-boying in the gym because the gym was taking over. All of that is is part of, of, of us seeing music and culture that it is and needs to continue being in social movements. Right. And, and G, um, so you guys have been involved in, you know, social and political movements um, basically since you guys have lived in this country, whether it's against police brutality uh, most recently or speaking out about Occupy Wall Street and how initially it wasn't as diverse as it probably should have been. It wasn't really speaking to the true 99%. So why do you think it's so important to speak out uh, about these injustices that these movements are bringing to light? I mean, you know, I think that it's always important to have a plurality of voices. In particular, the, the piece that you said about Occupy was some simple. We had a thought of a community center in the Bronx and and we doing work in the neighborhood around around really just providing alternatives for young people trying to do a little more uh, proposing as opposed to just opposing. You know, with, with Occupy, it was just our curiosity, like, yo, what's happening downtown? All these dudes, they taking over the, the uh, town squares downtown. Let's go keep script. And it's like, yo, we get there, and it's, they, they, you know, we, we treat it like we're from another planet, planet, I guess, planet Bronx, you know what I'm saying? But, again, I think that that's already, if you think about it, that's already seven, eight years ago, I think that from the importance of that, you know what I'm saying, we we, we have that language, uh, despite uh, the, the contradictions that were involved in that movement, we're left with the, with the very least with the idea of the language of the 99%, you know, this idea that, that there is a 1% and even less, a 0.01% of population that controls the wealth in this country and in the world. So I think that in that sense, it's a, it's a victory to still have that language culturally. And for us, it was also about bringing, you know, our culture, bringing our, our, the young people's culture from the Bronx also um, into those spaces. Um, and I see that now, you know what I'm saying, with, with, with newer movements that have emerged, you, you see more inclusiveness, you know what I mean? You see more involvement from marginalized, from historically marginalized communities being at the forefront and our culture also being at the forefront. But, you know, I think that one of the things that we've also learned is that, and, and this I think goes back to your previous question, like when we're talking about creating social change or creating some type of social movements uh, where culture is an integral component, um, at that point you can't just sing and dance about the revolution, you know what I mean? Uh, it has to be some type of action behind it. We always said that, man, what's what's the difference between, you know, when you're a studio gangster, that's when you're like, you, you talk about just being gangster and you only do it in the studio, but you don't really do gangster stuff on the streets, you know? So it's like, what, you're going to be a studio rebel? Like, you you just going to talk about it in the booth, but what type of actual work is going on in, in the streets to be able to back up those words, you know what I mean, and give it some teeth. And so I think that our experience has been that, you know, there is an, a, a space for culture to create power for our communities. I think that, you know, if you look at, it's kind of wild. We went to the community center that we helped build in the Bronx. We were displaced from in a neighborhood that's undergoing heavy gentrification. We just passed by the other day and I was bugging because they literally in the last two years have put up like three different housing condominium developments, you know what I mean? Uh, one of them literally across the street from where our, our, our old location was. In some ways, you know, we lost that fight. We lost, we were displaced and, and because there wasn't enough power built in our community. And so I think that when we talk about culture, we can't limit it to just saying, oh, you know, we want more representation. Uh, we want to see ourselves more in these spaces. We want more inclusion. Uh, like, for example, you know, what some, some of the dialogue around Occupy Wall Street was, and I think that we need to kind of challenge that, you know what I mean? And to say it's not, we don't want to just try to sit at the table with y'all. We want to be able to build our own table and cook our own food, you know what I mean? And be able to break bread uh, within our within our communities in a manner that's self-determined and autonomous. And I think that that's kind of the next step that we need to be looking at is how culture beyond just serving as a, a tool for representing marginalized communities and needs to be seen as somehow a tool that we can wield to build power in marginalized communities because just seeing ourselves on, on TV and just making the Oscars or the Grammys less white is not going to change the conditions uh, in our communities. It's not going to change the fact that, you know, we have 50 plus schools that have been closed in Chicago in the last few years. I was bugging, this is maybe a little off subject, but just one of the schools that was shut down here in Chicago a couple of years ago by Mayor Rahm Emanuel 
It's now turned into a temporary training site for the Chicago Police Department. Again, talking about how we can use culture to be able to to defend uh, our spaces and our public spaces, our our public schools, uh, our public streets, our public housing, being able to defend those things and using culture as a weapon for that as opposed to just simply being represented. And Rod, when you guys release Which Side Are You On, which I guess really embodies the revolutionary spirit that you guys are referring to, basically it was a coalition of artists in that track, in that video, Uh, you guys said we are living historic moments of oppression to which the people have the right to respond with historic moments of resistance. See, before I draw the line, let me welcome you close To all the folks who knew Obama, so the people of hopes Gave the money to suckers while our community's still poor Withdrew the troops but started another war Colonizing, terrorizing, creating the oil crisis So they can make a killer, no food and gas prices Prisons is filling, they trying to lock up the future Militarized borders and control of computers Want a stupid bump of music that ain't healthy for the shortest Privatizing schools and policemen in the halls And obviously that resistance was pre-Donald Trump, so that's not what you're referring to, but do you think we are uh, meeting this historic moment with the sort of resistance that we should be beyond Donald Trump, specifically what's going on in the streets that uh, the mainstream media and people don't really discuss? I think it's it's a weird space that's going on right now. I don't even know how to really phrase it you know, in a more sincere way because in, in many ways, Donald Trump's presidency, even him winning in his election, is a direct response to resistance in the streets. You know what I mean? You had an uprising in Ferguson, you know what I mean? And a military occupation of a city in the middle of America in which you saw the uprising of white America's biggest fear. You know what I mean? Poor black people. You know what I mean? I, I remember the, the images and being like, yo, white folks in America are going to be scared. You know what I mean? Because of everything that they've been sold by the media and all that. And so, like, in many ways, you see that. You see Baltimore. And the result of that, you know, under a post-Obama is Donald Trump, another extreme. And I really haven't seen, you know what I mean, people in the streets to the level that we were in 2014, 2015. You know what I mean? People are still being murdered by police. People, But I do think that... It's crazy because it all happens in cycles. I do think that that response is coming. Uh, you know, you have, you know, this being the 50th anniversary of, of, of Martin Luther King from 1968. Here we are in 2018, 50 years later, you know, and, and, and how are we going to respond? How are we going to hit the streets? And so I think that we definitely, you know what I'm saying, are going to have an interesting next couple months. We have, and it's crazy because like you said, I, you know, the historic moments of, of oppression, I was writing that. We was writing that. When was that, G? What, 2012? When we did the... Yeah, yeah. The, and so, you're talking about six years ago. Whatever. But the point is, is that now, you know, we live in historic moments for real, you know, in which we have a white supremacist as president, um, and, and he's using and exerting his power to the fullest extent, you know. So we'll see. There's all kinds of distractions going on with bombings in Syria, there's his own internal FBI situation going on. and It's crazy. So I, I think that it's an important time to have that, you know, response of resistance be historic as well. You know, I think that the people have always responded, you know, historically uh, against what's going on. And I think that, that that's going to continue happening. I would add that in particular, when we talk about historic moments of oppression, I think obviously this, this country is, is built off a story of, of oppression and marginalizing uh, entire communities. But in particular, the moment that we're in right now, I think it's important to look back. We always talk about the year 1973 as a marker year. 1973 is the year that the coup happened in Chile, which uh, in a lot of ways marks the beginning of the neoliberal era. 1973 is also the year that coup hurt through his famous party at 1520 Cedric. And it's marked as one of the beginning sparks of of hip-hop culture. 1973 is also the year that oil prices skyrocket for the first time in history. And the United States forms a special relationship with Saudi Arabia. And it's the beginning of the petrol dollar. The, The year also that the United States goes off of the gold standard. And so 
this year that is so, you know, in part us for so many reasons in terms of the personal history of Chile, in terms of the historical aspect of hip hop culture, it marked the beginning of an era in capitalism. Capitalism had been in crisis. Um, and that's why you had the, the Arab oil embargo uh, during that year. And so what's the solution? The solution is neoliberalism. The solution is taking the dollar off of the gold standard. The solution is creating a special relationship with Saudi Arabia, making sure that Israel is fortified to serve as a U.S. imperial proxy in the Middle East. And so now, 40 years later, which and during that time, we have the, the biggest loss of wealth in the history of the 20th century. Uh, you have the loss of employment while productivity skyrockets. You have a flatlining of, of wages since that time. And you have also a skyrocketing incarceration rate. And so now what we find ourselves at 40 years later, we find ourselves at another juncture. And capitalism is once again in crisis and is looking for its next way out. Uh, and unfortunately, the way that we've been looking at it lately, when you talk about culture, you, te- you can't talk about re- revolutionary culture and resistance cultures without talking about the context of cultural hegemony. And we just learned a new word because before I used to pronounce it as he get money, but it's not too different, right? Hegemony, the idea of, right, right. of total control of our culture, cultural hegemony, it's a, a reality that we live right now. When is the last time you searched something on the internet without using Google? When is the last time you promoted an event without using Instagram or Facebook? So the more and more we, we're realizing that power is being consolidated in a small amount of hands and the logic of capital and capitalism continues, except for now what was being uh, accumulated, the capital accumulation that's going on by the capitalists and those in power that owns the means of production is data. And so now we become, as people, we become the product. And even how the labor market has changed, now everybody has to become their own brand, whether it's, you know, we always say like, yeah, Rebel Diaz, we work for ourselves, man. You know, we don't got no boss and we independent, but you know what? We still work for the brand of Rebel Diaz. If we stop tweeting, if we stop making a presence on social media, our brand and thus our ability to make money and make a living off of that brand dissolves. And so we're entering into a new era of hyper-capitalism, hyper-individualism, and, we're, and, and more control by small amounts of, en- of entities. I mean, the amount, the exponential growth in uh, data processing power, in storage capabilities, uh, in AI and algorithm developments, we, we are, we're living in an unprecedented era where we're not even realizing how much control we're losing over our lives and how we're being forced to turn ourselves into the product. We are the product that we have to sell to the labor market in order to put food on our children's plates and a roof over their head. And so in that era, it becomes increasingly important to develop independent independent ways of messaging, whether it's doing a mural on the street, whether it's putting music out for free and making sure that you don't just have it on Spotify, but that you are in all the bootleg sites if you have to do it, that you're out there reaching the people, connecting with them. You know, how often are we losing that personal human connection, which is such an integral part of culture? So often when we talk about culture these days, it's like we just talking about it, about something that's based on the internet, that's digital, that's unseen, uh, untouched. You know what I mean? So how can we reclaim the aspect of culture that actually involves people? I think that that's, that's a very important talk when we talk about resistance, because the real talk, the resistance, that even that word is wild because that you, the fact that you pointed it out, like there's a resistance. The word means like a different thing in the post-Trump era because it has been co-opted by the Democratic Party and the Rachel Maddows who want you to resist Donald Trump, but they, but they down with Donald Trump if he goes to war with Russia or Iran or Syria. And they're down with Donald Trump when he supports Israel, but they just don't want him to be a bigot. That's wild. No, we, when we talk about resistance, we talk about real resistance, which, which means resisting uh, you know, the imperial ambitions of this crumbling empire. You know what I mean? Because at the end of the day, it's getting to a point where, and it's real, just look at the budgets. Here in Chicago, they spend 50% of the, operating bu- of the city's operating budget on policing. And even on the national level, how the amount we're spending on missiles was a crazy fact about each of these missiles that was dropped in Syria and how much, you know, one of those missiles could have solved the water crisis situation in Flint, Michigan. You feel me? And so, again, for us, I think that when we talk about 
historic moments of oppression. We, we recognize that we're in a turning point, that capitalism is once again in crisis, and those in power and that control the global economy are going to want to seek to further consolidate that power. And for us, it's uh, are literally the, the, the survival of the human race uh, depends on our ability to be able to break that system down through all and every means in which ca- and culture is a, an integral part of that. Right. And I, I think, and well, at least I hope uh, we know where you guys are coming from as a, an independent uh, news outlet trying to put out information that is not really being discussed on mainstream media, where it's Russia, 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 practically all day long, 24-7. And now we're also using music to sort of inform some of the messaging, if not amplify it. So can you guys talk about just uh, your contribution to this um, episode that we just released? MS-13, Made in the USA. For our listeners, can you just talk about the creative process, which they might be interested in, and sort of where you found your inspiration to produce such a visceral track? Absolutely, absolutely. I, um, we received the, the, the beat. So we, we didn't make the beat. We just received it. We heard it in the beginning. We were like, oh, this is like the West Coast. It's got like a little West Coast flavor to it. You know what I mean? Even myself, as, like, as, like a, as an MC that grew up, you know, not really seeing too many Latino MCs. We had like Cypress Hill. But then there was also groups like Delinquent Habits who's like huge in Chile. And there was kind of like a little West Coast flow to that. You know what I mean? There's a little vibe that I felt. G laid down the hook on the creative tip within Rebel Diaz. G's very musical. You know, he's a lot more musical than I am, I believe. And so he came up with, with the ill hook. Um, you know, I think we were only supposed to do verses, but you know, we like I said, we do songs, man. So we lay, we turned it into a joint. And uh, after we laid down the bars, we were like, "Yo, we should reach out to our brother Cruz from Reyes del Bajo Mundo, which means Kings of the Underground, uh, from El Salvador. Uh, they're one of the illest. They're like the pioneers of of a lot of the hip hop things going on in El Salvador." Like many, you know what I'm saying, through immigration and, and you know what I'm saying, sort of brothers are now in New York. And so we built with the brother crew, like, man, this is talking about the MS-13, about El Salvador. We got to have the brother from El Salvador be on it. We, can, we hit him up. He jumped on it. He blessed us, you know, and, and jumped on the song. And, uh, I mean, maybe G explained the hook. He didn't want to do the hook, but, you know, it breaks it down and... and and what we spit in is, is, is how we feel about the situation. You know, we're clear that the U.S., through civil wars that they funded, uh, civil wars against the liber- movements of liberation, the same movements of liberation that were in line with our family's political views in Chile. You know, so we're talking about folks that are against the FMLN in El Salvador. The U.S. government was against Sandinistas. Uh, you know, we're clear on that. And and the, 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 we sashayed in my verse. I'm like, there, there was contours all over Central America, not you know. And so, long story short, you know, we we laid it down, and and it was it was dope, man. We we, we feel it as a song, that even that just as a contribution to the podcast. We might have to bump it in the wind. Word, word, <laughs> go for it. I, I uh, yeah, I mean, you know, now my main sentiment approaching this joint was like, yo, why? I don't even know if you guys kept this part in the. In the actual broadcast, but at the beginning of the song, I'm kind of like muttering, like, yo, why we even talk about this, man? The only reason why we talk about this is because Trump want to talk about it. You know what I mean? And I think it's, it is important to talk about it because we need to be able to provide uh, counter information to the disinformation that's put forth by the likes of Trump and mainstream media. But at the end of the day, we cannot forget that the main reason we even have this conversation is because... And the MS-13 is being used as an instrument of fear to be able to excuse, A, economic failures domestically, and B, to be able to have an excuse to also go into messing with other countries. Simple as that, you know what I mean? And so whether it's uh, indirect intervention, you know, in in Latin America, I mean, just recently the U.S. supported uh, a coup that occurred you know, on multiple occasions at this point in the last uh, 10 years in Honduras, you know what I mean? And so when we talk about the Maras, the Gangas, the Padillas, the gangs, 
ganga, pandilla, gang, sets, traps, land, bang, same as it ever been, blame it on the immigrants, whenever recession hits, find something to sell them with, fear, black youth that gon' get that true, bald-headed, tatted, brown bodies are a terror suit, let the news tell it Whatever you want to, the, the words that you want to call these street organizations, in regards to how it's being treated in the, the mass conversation, it's, it's like the hook says, the same as it ever been. It's blame it on the immigrants whenever a recession hits. Find something to sell them with. Like, that's real. Like, whenever we have a situation of, and you can look at the patterns in this country historically, whenever you have a time of economic recession, when you have times of economic uncertainty, uh, there needs to be a scapegoat. You know what I mean? And so you'll see increased news coverage of supposedly violent immigrants or terrorists or this and that. And so that's the context in which we hit it from, you know what I mean? Which is like, yo, this whole conversation is, is also a conversation that has been imposed on us um, by, as a way of scapegoating certain communities. You know what I mean? I, I start off my verse talking about, you know what I'm saying, fear. It's the black youth that gonna get at you. The bald-headed, tatted brown bodies are a terror too. You know what I'm saying? And that's real too. Like we can't talk about the levels of, of racism inherent in some of the, the criticism and treatment uh, and analysis of these these street organizations like MS-13 without talking about the reality also that young black people are getting gunned down every day, you know what I'm saying, still in this in this country, you know what I mean? And so the, I think that's a, the the energy behind the joint is that, is that, you know, there's a, I think there's one point in the joint that we say, you know what I'm saying, like the lines get erased, you know what I'm saying? When you talk about, put all these images of the, you know, brown-skinned, tatted, bald people, you know, that's supposedly a menace to your community, at what point does the line get blurred where it's like, hey, maybe that bald-headed, tatted dude is actually not a member of a street organization. He's just a regular old hardworking dude, but his image is that of a violent criminal. You know what I mean? So how is what's also the dangers, you know what I'm saying, of those lines getting erased? And at the end of the day, also the political line that Rebel Diaz holds is that, you know what I'm saying, we, we say that no human being is illegal. We don't We don't say, you know, let's have a little bit of crumbs and get some immigration reform and maybe let's legalize a second-class citizenship for immigrants. Nah, we're saying that no human being is illegal. If you're going to open up the borders for commerce and for goods, you need to open up the border for people. And the reality is that that's, that's also a part of the conversation when we talk about immigration, you know what I'm saying, and what context are we putting, what we're putting it in. And for us, again, we feel that, you know, amnistia para todos, amnesty for all, no human being is illegal. And also a component of that is, is abolish prisons. You know what I'm saying? We believe that there's other forms that can, there can be other forms that we can, that we can deal with criminal elements in our, or, or antisocial elements in our society, in our communities that doesn't have to deal with the criminal injustice system, which is an extension of the, the, of the structures of slavery in this country. You know what I mean? So for us, that's an important thing to talk about too, because you know what I mean? We all, we all want to be safe in our communities. I want to be able to walk with my shorties, with my, with my, with my partner, my babies down the block and not have to worry about any inter inter community violence. But at the same time, I don't want to have to worry about getting gunned down by the police. You know what I mean? So how is it that we can uh, create safe communities that are autonomous, that are self-governing? Um, and that means building power in our neighborhoods. It means getting to know our neighbors. It means not doing activism only online. It means seeing each other face to face. You know what I mean? So I think that the the energy behind that is behind the song, behind the lyrics are, are that is that, you know, we're going to talk about this issue. Let's make sure that we put it in its proper context. Right, right. And, and just quickly before we let you guys go, um, what should people look forward to in the coming future for you guys? Oh, that's so we actually got a lot, a lot coming out. We are uh, we're about to release uh, our first all Spanish language album uh, titled America versus America. C -c -c That's how it's spelled out. So America, like in Spanish, versus America with three Ks, the title. We're about to put out our first single off that album called Ivaca Ed. It's Rebel Diaz featuring Ana Tiju, uh, MC from Chile. That's real dope. Yeah, it's a dope album. You know what I'm saying? A lot, a lot of the, that roots that we talked about, I think you're going to be able to hear that. Um, and it's us really talking to our people in Latin America and really to a large portion of our peeps out here in the U.S. as well that speak Spanish and have grown up with that as a second language. And then we have another project which is Rebel Diaz uh, and our brother Tev Poe from, from St. Louis. 
And that project together is called Multiply. And you know, we 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 got some joints on there. It's us rocking the English. So yeah, it's Rebel Diaz and Tepo. We got music featuring the Reminders, featuring Star Rock, uh, Rod Diggers on on a joint. We got a joint with Bamboo. It's dope. It's, it's a dope project. We're really looking forward to, to releasing it soon. And uh, yeah, just keeping keep keeping that struggle alive. And you know, from 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 the music to the message to the street. That's what we on. Great. Looking forward to hearing that. Sounds like you guys are really coming full circle. So on behalf of the Newsbeat crew over here, we really appreciate you guys uh, contributing to this this episode and taking some time out to speak with us. So big thanks, uh, Rod Stars and G1 from Rebel Diaz. Thanks a lot, guys. Peace to y'all, brothers. Thank y'all for all the work that y'all do as well, man. Appreciate it. Peace. Peace. So there you have it, guys. Uh, this backbeat for our episode MS-13, Made in America. Shouts once again to Rebel Diaz, Cruise Control, Jose Miguel Cruz, Raymond Bonner, Patrick Young, and all of you for your ears and for your attention and for sharing, supporting, and blessing us as we do this work. Oh, real, real quick thing? Yeah, man. I, I never in- interrupt you during No, let's trial. do it. If people do want to learn more about the, the Salvadoran Civil War, I recommend that you actually pick up Raymond Bonner's book, it was actually republished by Or Books uh, recently, and it's called Weakness and Deceit, America and El Salvador's Dirty War. So check that out. Yeah, he was a fascinating guy. And thanks, really thanks, uh, uh, Mr. Bonner, for your uh, contribution. As journalists, we, uh, we we look up to folks like you really out there. You know, we talk about how important it is for journalists to go there. <laughs> he went there. My, my man went there. Uh, and he went there again. And he really brought great insight to the table. So that was actually, I mean, you know, pulled a surprise with him. man. I know yep. he doesn't care much about it. We do. <laughs> uh, so shouts to him. Shouts to everyone involved. Shouts to uh, you, Chris Tawarski, our editor-in-chief. Shouts to you, Rashad Mian our managing editor shouts to me many faces producer and host of newsbeat and backbeat and once again to jed maury our executive producer and all the team at maury creative studios don't forget maury creative studios can help you in your business with uh, inbound marketing lead generation sales support support sales enablement i think it's sales enablement i don't think it's sales support sales enablement. a little different retention something about all the businessy things that your business needs uh, websites you can tell we're journalists leads we marketing Getting seen. I think it's all about getting seen. It's all about getting seen. And SEO. Getting, getting noticed. We all want to be noticed. Pamphlets. Yep. <laughs> Whatever you need, more Creative can help you out Step there. Step and repeats. Yes, we need some of those. Oh, check it out. When is this coming out? Okay, cool. April 21st. Are you in the New York, New Jersey area? There's a 2018 Makers Day event happening at the Jersey City Boys and Girls Club. Me, Manny Faces, accompanied by some members of the Newsbeat team, will be there to present on our podcast. Uh, check it out. We'll link to it in our little blurb that goes along with this on the website, usnewsbeat.com. Uh, other than that, we'll be back with another episode very shortly. Do follow us on social media, US Newsbeat in most places. Do share our stuff. Tell your peoples about it. Tell your friends, neighbors, supporters, haters, that they need to check out the Newsbeat podcast to hear an unconventional look at conventional wisdom. We are a social justice and civil liberties oriented podcast that sounds really good. Check us out. USnewsbeat.com. My name is Manny Faces. We are out. Peace. Wow, this guy really got uh, in the zone there at the end. You really, you really got in the zone, man. All right, let's go eat. The Newsbeat podcast is owned by Newsbeat Inc. Visit us at usnewsbeat.com. The producer and host of Newsbeat is Manny Faces. Our editor-in-chief is Christopher Tawarski. Newsbeat's managing editor is Rashed Meehan. The executive producer of Newsbeat is Jed Morey. Our podcast and website are co-produced and managed by Morey Creative Studios. Newsbeat relies on listener support and grants. Artists that appear on the podcast are compensated for original material. To support Newsbeat or contribute to our Artist-in-Residence program, visit us at usnewsbeat.com and click on support. Subscribe to Newsbeat by Maury Creative Studios wherever you download your podcasts by searching for Newsbeat.